0: What I think matters more, you know, once we get past the duty and obligation of completing a plan, what we really need to deliver our effective capability. You have to be able to identify that there's a triggering event, that something has happened and reach consensus that that needs the level of treatment that a crisis team might respond to. That's not always easy. Sometimes crises come with a bang, but very often they don't. And those are the most challenging circumstances. Then you need to have some kind of really rapid, reliable responsible way of escalating your organization to get the right players to the table and then define a set of objectives against whatever it is that's going on.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Merge Management podcast, which is your platform for global perspectives and conversations about international crisis, preparedness, and building more resilient societies. In this episode, we'll be joined by Brendan Monahan, heavily experienced in private sector crisis management, and Business Continuity Operations to discuss crisis management and complex organizations and building meaningful capabilities in your organization. Brandon is the author of the book, Strategic Corporate Crisis Management, Building an Unconquerable Organization, and we will also explore the link between crisis management and business continuity. So, Brandon, thanks a lot for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's great to be here with you. So one of the things I think in, in terms of this topic is really interesting. And I think you draw it out in your book as well. And it's about complex organizations that are moving beyond planned dependency and, and sort of focusing on what, where you're calling meaningful capabilities, I guess. And so what is, what does this all mean? Can you unpack that a little bit? And before we do that, maybe just some, some more context, a little bit of background about yourself, where you're coming from and in terms of your experience, and then how did you get into a position now of wanting to publish this book on this specific
0: topic? Yeah, sure. Sure. So so by way of introduction, I'm currently the head of U.S. crisis management and resilience for a, a global pharmaceutical company. And I've been in that role for well, five and a half years or so. Prior to So joining this organization, I was on security leadership teams at two major critical infrastructure companies. One was a energy company uh, here in the U.S. in the Northeast, and the other was the largest publicly traded water utility company in the U.S. And in both of those organizations, sort of led and, and developed crisis management, business continuity, and security intelligence capabilities. And prior to that, I was in the public sector. I worked for A a state homeland security office as an intelligence investigator, leading teams of counterterrorism intelligence analysts. My career path uh, has kind of been from, from starting looking at that counterterrorism threat piece and how it mapped to targets in, you know, the New Jersey, greater New York City area, which were, you know, at that time and probably still are very much critical infrastructure targets. And we found back then was that. Most of that infrastructure that was being targeted by bad guys was owned and operated by the private sector, which introduced a lot of complexity to the government's ability to respond and coordinate in planning for those types of things so Over time, I eventually moved into the private sector and started working for some of those organizations that that owned the energy infrastructure that owned the the water infrastructure and and It was really you know it was a great experience kind of seeing how all of these things come together now. My function is in support of a global pharmaceutical company where we're looking at how we can deliver, continue to deliver medicines to patients that need them, whose lives depend on them. We need to ensure the continuity of manufacturing and production processes, the safety and integrity and security of our people and our places. So that's the, the focus of my work these days, just five years. To answer your question around complexity kind of what what I mean by that. There are complex organizations and there are complex responses. And I guess to unpack that word a little bit, what I mean is by complexity, more than probably most most practically, more than you know it when you see it or it's in the eye of the beholder, which is probably the easiest way to think about it, to take it down a little bit, it's really the connection between cause and effect, right? The degree to which cause and effect can be known and the extent to which that relationship can be repeated. So the absence of a a cause and effect relationship in a response or in an organization generates complexity, which needs to be managed, right? Lots of organizations deal with complexity all the time and they become very good at it such that they can develop processes to handle it, right? Modern militaries do this. They have probably the most complex challenges that anyone can imagine with the highest levels of risk, you know, delivering high technology and, and weapon systems to some of the worst, most difficult conditions you can imagine. You know, but they overcome that or they cope with that complexity by inserting uniformity and repeatable processes and common training, common physical uniforms and language. In the in the private sector, in the business world, it's a lot harder to enforce that level of uniformity as a coping mechanism for complexity. So we need to do other things. It's just not efficient for us to do that in the same way. So so that's kind of what I look at as as the problem or the challenge, especially as we see problems confronting crisis teams, especially in private sector, really evolving over the past few years. From some of the things that we've seen a lot, the, the common security issues, natural disasters, wet, severe weather problems, now we're seeing a host of different types of issues that cause us to swim in lanes we haven't this before with teams of people and groups that maybe we interact with less often. So that's been the focus of my work most recently.
1: Yeah, and that's really interesting because there's been a lot of discussions coming up. Well, let's say since 2022, with the changing sort of threat and hazard and risk environment that we're all facing, and post pandemic into the the Russian you know war against Ukraine, and, and into even more complex scenarios like we see unfolding these days has given everybody pause, I, I think to a certain extent, and that should give people pause, to think about what sort of threats and hazards their organization is facing. Because we went through this period, and I'm just sort of going from my own perspective here, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but we went through this period of outsourcing, you know, and it's the supply chain issues, and we went all of this all together as a global society, and then we just realized how fragile we had made everything. And then there's a, this massive push to reshore everything and to build more resilient organizations. But I think that in many ways, while that has, the global events have given us pause to think about more complex crises that we're facing, there's still an ingrained, almost institutional dependency upon plans and the way we've always done things. But I would love to hear sort of your thoughts about why we need to move away from plan dependency. It's always been a thing in emergency management, like a plan is just a plan. It's something that shouldn't just live on a shelf. I mean, even when we looked at the national response plan, moving to the national response framework, you know a long time ago, that there was an acknowledgement even then that we need something that's not just going to be a plan that is living in a document. So in terms of private sector engagement, it's interesting that you pulled on on sort of that thread of the military capability planning process, but how is it in the private sector and how can the private sector move beyond plans and then focus more on capabilities, I guess, is my question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's such an interesting debate in this world right around the extent to which plans should be dependent upon and and how much confidence we should put in plans and our ability to do planning. And I think, you know, for me, I want to be clear that planning and plans are something that we have an obligation to do, right? It's expected of us as practitioners to develop good, responsible plans, especially where we have regulators, where we have customers dependent upon critical products we may have one another within an organization depending upon the expectations that are inherent in plans. So we have a duty and an obligation to do a certain amount of planning. But I think maybe where we should exercise some caution or maybe think differently is our attitude towards those plans. That they shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. And that the expectations of our leaders or our stakeholders is that the plan is a starting point, right, as a point of reference. What I think matters more, you know, once we get past the duty and obligation of completing a plan, what we really need to deliver our effective capability. You have to be able to identify that there's a triggering event, something has happened, and reach consensus that that needs the level of treatment that a crisis team might respond to. That's not always easy. Sometimes crises come with a bang, but very often they don't. And those are the most challenging circumstances. Then you need to have some kind of really rapid, reliable, responsible way of escalating your organization to get the right players to the table and then define a set of objectives against whatever it is that's going on. If you have a plan that says how to do all that and it works every time, then great. But I would argue that that's not really a crisis management plan. It's a business process. It's something that you're able to do repeatedly regardless of what's happening. When we're talking about crisis management, I'm imagining the types of events that that are so consequential that they could you know, wipe out your organization or maybe cause your organization not to exist anymore. And that they're, they're escalating at a speed and over a duration faster than your existing business processes can, can manage. So, where I'm looking at an organization that is coping with something for which they have no business process, that's where I see crisis management coming by that definition, there can't be, there really be a plan for those. But there are certain activities that you can execute well on. And to the extent that within those categories, you can create linear processes that you can repeat under any conditions, that's good. You should do those plans. But we shouldn't rest on our rules and, and think that having done that, we're ready for anything.
1: How do we balance what I, right, rightly or wrongly, perceive to be a challenge in the private sector In between capability-based planning within the military and say publicly funded organizations versus capability-based planning within a private organization which ultimately publicly traded companies i mean they have an obligation to shareholders to produce profit so much like insurance you sort of have to have something in place but there's a cost associated with it which you might never ever use Uh, so how do we balance those two differences because one on the military side defense sector side it's a national security national interest this is just the cost of having a secure society on the private sector it's different sort of argument and there's probably greater pressure on the bottom line and the cost associated with building capabilities what is a strategy to sort of get around
0: these difficult topics i think the answer is somewhere in culture right so the the public sector the military their readiness their ability to do crisis management and and emergency management and all these disciplines is baked into their DNA, right? There's already a natural affinity for those types of disciplines and those subject matter. Less so in the private sector where your business is in healthcare or manufacturing or retail. Whatever your mission is, that doesn't have to do with the everyday protection of life and, and property and so on. So how do you achieve that, right, where it's not maybe core to your mission? And I think part of the answer lies in in finding a way to articulate the link between crisis, emergency management activities and your organization's purpose in existence, right? The way to get there can be, probably should be, especially in like the bigger global organizations. A very clear policy that gives you the ability to get buy-in from the relevant stakeholders who will say, yes, you know what? This is important to us. This is why. This is how it links to to what we do kind of has a trickle down effect, right? Through layers of management and leadership teams. But If you can point to a, a unified global or national high level policy in your organization that makes it clear why this is core. And then from there defines what kind of what needs to be done. I think that's really helpful. You have to somehow articulate what the crisis management mission is in relation to your own company's culture or organization's culture and its meaning.
1: So in your, in your book, Strategic Corporate Crisis Management, I mean, you're discussing building an unconquerable organization. So is this one of the strategies that you're talking about as sort of the organizational culture behind crisis management and understanding the investment that's required to build an unconquerable organization? And then what other strategies can organizations take upon themselves and enact to become more resilient?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The idea behind the word unconquerable was to get at the, the notion that things are going to happen. Right. And while crises may not be inevitable, the unexpected will occur. So the, the way to think about it in my mind is, will we just allow those things to happen? You know, think about the meaning of the word, right? Disaster. It comes from like an old Italian where it means bad alignment of stars, right? Disaster is a bad alignment of stars is nothing I can do with those are celestial bodies outside of my control. I'm a victim of circumstances. When a crisis, the origin of the word has to do with a moment of decision that pulls you in. I am action is required. Even if I choose to do nothing or I have done something, I consciously engaged in whatever's going on. To me, the idea of becoming unconquerable is to own that and say, okay, when the unexpected emerges, we're going to take some ownership of it, take some control of it and define ourselves in relation to what's going on. For an organization like a global enterprise, you know, the things that do well, the ones that perform the best, right? they have a policy, they have a broad, high-level consensus that this matters, maybe even why, right? This has happened to us before, it will never happen again, and here's what we're going to do about it. That message is compelling to a workforce that believes in the mission of whatever it is you're doing. Right? And that's a way of connecting people to the importance of this material.
1: I like it when people are able to sort of string ideas together and sort of the differences between disaster and crisis, really. like We had some, I wouldn't call it difficulties, but we had some challenges. But it was a a natural recognition, I think, initially. When we started talking about in our own space, you know, between crisis, conflict, and emergency management, like Mm -hmm. how these things are, they're, they're not linear, but they are related, right? And so how things escalate over time, how a disaster may eventually in turn Become a crisis or a crisis into a disaster, and then how that can build into conflict and the larger management or larger issues behind that, and how that we actually use some principles of emergency management to help stabilize conflict. And so on the surface, they don't appear to be connected. But I think what we are seeing most recently in the last year to two years is that a lot of things and a lot of systems are connected, which we just had presumed or assumed that they were not in the past and that they were somehow this is a disaster here. And then the the secondary effects and third order effects, you know, will happen, but will not, are not necessarily associated with me, but then with the pandemic and the supply chain issues and everything else that started to breaking apart in the last couple of years, we started to see just how interconnected we all are. And in, in terms of the, the organizations, what can they do in terms of realizing their exposure to these certain types of, I don't know, global events, for example.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to make this real sometimes when these things seem so far away or hard to imagine. You know, maybe that's less the case after we've lived through COVID and now several significant global conflicts, but certainly it was the case prior to 2020. And, and, you know, businesses are focused on their business, right? They, they have objectives to be. sometimes hard to communicate the relevance of this. One of the most powerful ways of, of achieving that in my experience has been through exercises. Right. We may have a duty to plan and our regulators may require or our customers may require certain things of us and we'll do all that. But to get really meaningful capabilities in place, dollar for dollar, pound for pound, there's no better way than with exercises. And they can be simple tabletops. It's just a way of getting the, the discussion started. And the focus doesn't need to be about some um, complex scenario involving global Conflicts or swirling agendas. It can be, you know, an exercise that has an objective to calibrate how a specific business unit is going to respond to some kind of unexpected and escalating situation. I've had a lot of experience doing exercises with that in mind. We need to figure out how do we escalate a team appropriately so that everyone's comfortable. And in some of these teams experience proceduralizing that specifically, you know, like an SOP doesn't work because you need the judgment of the people closest to whatever's happening to inform good decisions further up the chain. And further up the chain, those decisions can't be made in a vacuum. So there has to be some kind of a link. And the calibration of, of what matters and what should get reported can really be achieved in simple, lightweight exercises.
1: When I listen to that, and, and you draw the theme of complex organizations, but I listened to that as as somebody, you know, and I think, okay, small business, medium sized business, and then larger scale, complex organization. And I can imagine that people who have smaller business businesses like myself or who are or others that are not dumbly involved in these fields would look at this and say, well, this just seems to be over the top. It's not Mm -hmm. it's not something like why would I need to exercise with a small team of ten or whatever the case is. So what are the differences here between as we talk about sort of scaling? on these levels. So you, you have a small enterprise, but maybe it's it's agile and it's capable of working remotely and all sorts of different independent processes and they don't need such a formal exercise and process to test their own internal systems. And maybe it's not so formal at all. Maybe there's no SOPs. <laughs> you know, that happens as well. How do these things scale? I guess is my point. How do these things scale from small business entities who really need probably to look at their business continuity plans? Mm -hmm. And then how does this merge up into more complex organizations and where they need to really focus on, like you're saying, overall crisis management and even between different teams and different operational sectors or geographic locations? Yeah,
0: my experience, the biggest global enterprises, the biggest national level companies are really just collections of smaller organizations or units or, or businesses that sort of operate independently under a maybe a broader heading. So when you look at any organization, it's really just a family or a combination of lots of different groups and units that are are collaborating together for common good. So a lot of times in a big complex organization, you have to break down the chunks and then break down those chunks even further to find where the minimum level where decisions can be made, right? The lowest level we can delegate to reasonably, and then work backwards from there. I just don't know if it's practical to have a An enterprise crisis team working out of an ivory tower somewhere in a global setting that can define everything with perfection. I don't think you can define everything to perfection at all, but to the extent that you can draw a line between the lowest level frontline of the organization to the intermediaries that matter the most to the senior level, I think that's where you see the most success. One of the ways of defining What those levels are is the ownership of the resources, right, and the responsibility. Like an individual site located in an individual country that's part of a global brand probably shouldn't make decisions for the overall organization's budget, right, or reputation alone. Those kinds of decisions should be informed at that headquarters level. But the messaging that's coming out of headquarters really depends on that local nuance and the details that are coming up, especially if they're on the front lines of whatever's occurring. Likewise, the messaging that's coming back down scale needs to be localized. So so I think the organizations that perform best have figured out how to calibrate those levels right. The organization I work in now, we have site, country, and global, but there's a lot of different ways to do it. It's going to be very dependent upon the organization and the organization's culture and their willingness to adopt these things.
1: When you are talking about Sort of the, the, the vertical integration of information and almost a delegation of responsibilities into countries and, and things like that. It, it just reminds me of the importance of the leadership in terms of being willing to accept that. And then, as you said, sort of being willing to promote that type of mentality and leadership. So what sort of role does leadership play in building unconquerable organizations?
0: One of the examples I like to point to is the the case of Walmart when Hurricane Katrina was bearing down the Gulf states. And the CEO of Walmart recognized that what was happening was going to be unprecedented and that Walmart was going to have a unique role. In many places in the U.S., Walmart is the food store, the pharmacy, the hardware store, the, the clothing store. It's where many communities get pretty much everything that they need. And they are also one of the biggest employers in the world, and certainly in the U.S., so it it seemed as if the leadership, in that case, recognized their unique position or their, their responsibility. And the message, as the story goes, that, that went out from the CEO to his leadership team was, what's about to happen is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. You are expected to know what the right thing is to do, and you're trusted to do it. And that message was then cascaded down from that leadership team to their leadership teams, all the way down to the front lines. And what the effect of that was, after the storm hit, you had individual store managers, individual Walmart employees doing things to help the communities where they were, opening up stores that had been damaged, making the pharmacy available so people could just come in and take medicine needed, giving out water and other critical supplies, opening up their facilities to local law enforcement and emergency management agencies to set up command centers, all of these things. The Walmart leadership you know, recognized, acknowledged, and supported these actions. Honestly, in my heart of hearts, I don't know if I could give that message or receive it, you know, in any organization. That's a really tall order. And I just admire how that organization was able to do that. I think it speaks a lot to the, the culture that they have, to the values that they integrated into every level of the organization that they were able to execute on that. And and also to to point out the examples of what good looked like in progress and afterwards,
1: you know that really makes me think that there's. Let me frame it this way: we often talk about leadership during crisis. We often talk about leadership in emergency management organizations, and we we have that. Just even any organization, there's lots of discussions about leadership. And I think one of the most difficult things is what you've talked about, which is trust. Right, trusting and delegating, and and relying and believing in the fact that people and your your subsidiaries, your other organizations we'll do the right thing when the time comes. And that's a, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's a huge level of trust and in an unprecedented situation and just so happened to turn out well, I suppose. I'm sure there's cases where it didn't turn out as well, but obviously that kind of leadership plays a, a pretty key role in the whole process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the leadership of the enterprise and then there's also the leadership within the crisis team, right? And they're, they're not the same. Uh, the, the enterprise leadership is going to speak on behalf of the whole Organization and you would hope, you know, if you're lucky, they're, they're aligned with what you're doing, but sometimes they're not, you know, or, or behind the scenes, it's, it's not as, as easy or it may be a challenging relationship depending on where you're working. And that's a fact of life, right? That's where the leadership within the crisis team becomes really important too. And the ability to focus a team on objectives, what matters, who's doing what, how are we going to proceed? And being very clear and transparent about how you're going to confront what it is you're dealing with.
1: And so, in situations like this, we would find there's a lot of discussion around business continuity practices, and you know, just following your business continuity procedures to making sure that your supply chains are intact and everything that goes along with that. Just as an example, but from your experience, how are you differentiating between business continuity and and crisis management in this in this context?
0: Yeah, so I think this is a great point, and and something we try to emphasize in every exercise and in every conversation where I work about these two topics. I think business continuity is the secret weapon of the crisis management team. The example I use when I'm talking with stakeholders in my organization that aren't really in this world is to imagine a tall building with one elevator and the elevator crashes to the ground. So the crisis team's role is to, you know, let's get the people out of the elevator, make sure they get medical attention. Let's seal off the elevator so no one else uses it and call the elevator repair company coordinating all of that acute response the business continuity teams will say okay what activities what critical processes are going on in the building which ones are on the upper floors that need to be relocated which ones are on upper floors that cannot be relocated put up a sign so that everyone uses the stairs until the elevator is repaired communicate what's going on to me the relationship is the the crisis team's role is really to Address kind of the acute problem, right? And handle the transition of a falling action to however low it's going to fall. The business continuity team can tell you how far that is, right? Or how deep the water is going to be when you land, right? They should be able to give you some sense of what the minimum acceptable limits are and how far the loss can go before it's really going to hurt the organization, right? So good business continuity planning will have Establish kind of what the key business processes are and what what the tolerable downtimes will be to maximum and minimum levels. And that's a sort of a form of intelligence that can be fed into the crisis team earlier on, maybe earlier on than we sometimes invite it, that could be really helpful in defining what your priorities should be, especially in when we're talking about complex organizations. If you're dealing with complicated products and supply chains with a lot of internal dependencies it can be difficult to know what matters. And maybe you have assumptions about what's important and what isn't that aren't necessarily true. The business continuity team knows where the skeletons are, it can help you sort of separate fact from fiction and bring some of that. What I would say is really intelligence to bear. If you think of it backwards,
1: that makes me think of another question, which I am now curious about. At what point does it does in the private sector in these organizations, at what point or at what level do they get to? to where they should really focus on having a crisis team, a crisis action team? Like, what what is that sort of level? Is that sort of income-driven? Is it complexity? Is it personnel numbers-driven? Like, what is that tipping point that makes organizations think, you know, okay, we need to have a unit or a department or just to handle these specific scenarios?
0: I think it's a good question. When do you create a team to focus on this? Yeah. It may depend from organization to organization on their experience. In each of the companies that I've worked in, in the private sector, there was some historical precedent for the creation of a team. Something bad happened in the past and the company said to itself, we're not going to let that happen again, or at least not in the same way. And part of the solution to that was the creation of a policy, the creation of some kind of a resilience function. And they each had a different sort of solution, different response to it in terms of the organization, how they set up that team. But I think that's probably usually the case, right? Either an organization is able to look around at its peers and say, everyone else is doing this, so we should too. But maybe that's a little less compelling than having actually felt the pain of something happened to your your people, your products, your reputation, finances, and decided, listen, we're, we're not going to let that happen again. We've got to do something about this, and this is how we're going to approach it. And at that point, they may refer back to their peers or best practices.
1: Yeah, I think that's largely going to be, as you said, experience-based. And so having living, you know, if an organization lives through an event, which is you know, very difficult for them to get through in terms of economic impact or uh, whatever the case is, then they learn from that experience and move forward. But when organizations do decide that they want to focus on crisis management, and especially as they're growing more complex as an organization, what are some of the steps that they could take initially to start looking at this field to, as you've already discussed, you know, Differentiating between business continuity, which any size organization can do, but then really, how we, as a process of maturity, start differentiating between business continuity into crisis management, and then what are the initial steps that they can start take if, take if they find that they're in a place of where they need to start focusing on this?
0: Yeah, I mean, a good place to begin is probably looking to wherever the organization assesses and manages risk from. Maybe that's a formal risk management. Process right in a public company, or maybe it's in a smaller organization. It's within a leadership team that periodically reviews, formally or informally, the risks to its organization. Somehow or another, every organization looks at itself and says, "These are the risks that we're confronted with, and these are the things we're willing to tolerate in terms of risk, and the things that we can't." And that somehow determines where and how they play as a business. Right? That's the discussion that this needs to sort of find itself in this topic. So if you're able to formally conduct a risk management, an enterprise risk management process or review and define like these are the pain points and this is our our appetite and our tolerance for different types of risks, then the way to articulate the need for the crisis management team or its role in that process is to say, okay, in the event of the manifestation of one of these risks in an uncontrolled escalating manner, this is sort of our last line of defense we have good processes. We have responsible management. We have structured reporting. We have SOPs and procedures. We have risk management. And then if all else fails, we have crisis management team that's going to use a structured approach that reflects best practices. We've established a policy that somehow formalizes it within our our organization, and they will guide us. Even without the reference to formal plans, they will have taken some responsible measures to map the organization, figure out where the key points are, who the stakeholders are, and determine how to shepherd them to a solution when the unforeseen occurs.
1: You just highlighted some very clear steps towards that process. Now I'm curious as to where do you find most organizations are lacking in those steps? Where are the weaknesses that you've seen in some of the sort of common denominators for these types of organizations that need to evolve and build out a crisis management team, for example?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I'm speculating, right? So I've I've only been inside a couple of organizations, and I won't talk about those. But you know, I as I look around at the at other companies, and I see in the news the types of crises that companies are confronted with, and the ones that do well, and the ones that seem not to do as well. Where I think the ones that do well do best is in the seams between or key parts of their organization. If there's a risk management team that that knows what the appetite is for certain types of failures. And there's a business continuity team that knows how bad those failures can get before they're catastrophic and, and what the manual workarounds look like and how long they will take to come back. And those two things are in far-flung corners, of the organization that have no way of talking to each other. Then I think that's a gap, obviously. Where I think crisis management professionals can do the most good right away is by finding and unifying Those disparate people. I do this every day. And it's always so surprising how little an organization can know about itself, even when they work in the same setting or the same office. In today's environment, business moves so fast, challenges occur so quickly that organizations think of themselves as agile and are constantly changing, redefining themselves. That means when something goes wrong, it's hard to know who to turn to. And sometimes I think our value or the crisis management team's value proposition is in. Being kind of uniquely positioned to close those gaps, to know where they are, predict them, and sort of work around them when something's going on.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And, and of course, it's not. Uh, there's, there's many, many organizations. I think it gets to an issue of scale that once you reach a certain level, then you become more sort of divided internally because the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And it yeah. it's just a natural sort of growth problem that occurs in larger and more complex organizations that has to be, you know, once it's there, it has to be resolved to a certain extent, right? And so that leadership driving all the way down and these processes that you're talking about, they're always built upon a foundation of good policy and procedures and and business continuity planning. do have one question, though, as we're sort of getting towards the, the end of our discussion, but with the changing technology and the pace of change with technology and the rapid speed of information that goes out there, and and we're seeing it every day in terms of you know global conflict and everything else. How has this impacted your work, and how would this impact organizations that are trying to be more resilient or more unconquerable, as you mentioned?
0: The challenge that I've encountered a few times is the the, the breaking news effect. If something happens, and and the question is, what are we, what are we going to do about this, or what if this impacts us, or what are the effects on us, and Increasingly with some of these types of problems, it's hard to really answer that question. As a kind of former Intel analyst person, I'm also really curious about the, the influence of disinformation on sort of modern media reporting and, and how that's, you know, how that's impacting the way our employees and leaders think about things, right? Through no fault of their own. So that concerns me a lot. I think, you know, it's really, it's really interesting to watch the technology evolve around AI and large language models and and all of that kind of stuff. I think we're still in the hype cycle somewhere on it. Uh, you know, everybody that's in that business seems to need to to comment on it. I would do the same thing, but I'm not sure what it all means yet certainly for us. There's a lot of products out there that are making use of that technology and and I'm not sure where where the application really is. So I'm hopeful. I'm skeptical. What I'm more concerned about is how some of these technologies will change society and and the way in which we have to do business in those societies. That's going to impact what the conversation looks like inside the crisis room when stuff happens.
1: Absolutely. I believe that to be true as well. And I think one of the interesting things I've seen, at least in my own experience, is it is, especially with the use of AI and la- large language models, is the ability to generate documents and plans and procedures very quickly and to be like, oh, this is great. And then there I have my plan and, you know, I have business continuity because, you know, chat GPT just, you know, wrote it for me. But it never replaces the human factor in terms of the work that's required to leave your office, to go across to the other cubicle, to go to the other office or the other building, <laughs> depending on how large your, your organization is. And actually talk to people to figure out, like, who are you going to be talking to during a crisis? Exactly. And so the speed at which we're able to develop and documents and check the box has accelerated dramatically. You could write a whole, you could develop a whole organization with ChatGPT within a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the human factor still undermines everything. And I'm not that sounds overly negative. But what I'm saying is that you can't replace the human element inside of all that because at the end of the day, the human still makes the decision about what we're going to do or not do, you know, and, and we have to, to be able to coordinate and talk to each other and know who your counterparts are. So what I was sort of seeing to sort of sum that up is I've seen a lot of organizations and, and a lot of efforts to just, they can massively generate documents to be compliant, but fail upon actual being actually being tested. In any sort of form or function like that, if that makes sense.
0: That makes perfect sense. You know, and and it goes back to where we started this conversation about being dependent on plans and having the right constructive positive attitude about the role that plans play in our readiness, right? Our ability to be ready for something unexpected is, is really dependent upon our ability to find the right people and get the right answers and decisions made when it matters. As it stands, I don't know if, if AI or Large language models offer a solution for that. I think that's still going to be always kind of a, a, human, a human role for for crisis practitioners and probably where we do some of our best work and most have our most meaningful outcomes.
1: I think the irony there is that is, as the speed of document development continues to accelerate and we can do things faster on paper and generate better documents, then technically that should free up our time to go talk to each other. <laughs> One would hope, right? and then actually have the interaction we need to be able to coordinate and build that organizational culture that you're talking about. So maybe that's the silver lining, Kyle. I think you you just summed it up. Well, let's hope so. Okay, Brandon, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today. It's a very interesting conversation and would encourage everybody to go find the book, Strategic Corporate Crisis Management, Building an Unconquerable Organization. And if you want to connect with brendan how can we best reach you and where can we find the book
0: yeah thanks kyle the books on amazon barnes and noble you can find it anywhere you buy books online and uh the best place to find me is linkedin just look up my name there and feel free to reach out drop me a line always happy to engage with other practitioners
1: all right okay thanks a lot brendan and appreciate you being here And thanks to everybody who's listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you wouldn't be so kind as to give us a rating. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website or social media channels. And of course, that's it. So thanks a lot and stay safe and keep learning.